July 1st, 1863, 23-year-old Lieutenant Colonel Henry Hedekopper gripped his arm in agony. Fighting had broken out early that day in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And just as the battle had begun, a bullet had ripped through Hedekopper's arm, rendering him useless. Luckily, he got to a hospital bed at St. Francis Xavier's church before he bled out. A calloused surgeon examined Hedekopper's arm and confirmed his worst fears. They'd have to amputate it, and fast. They gave him morphine for the pain, but Hedekopper stayed awake to watch the gruesome three-minute procedure. He stared with interest as they removed his dominant right arm just below the bicep, tossing it on a medical tray and carting it away. The limb was discarded with about as much sentiment as a rusty old pipe. But Hedekopper's nightmare wasn't over yet. Over the next few days, he slept in a drug-induced stupor. He dreamt of writing letters to his loved ones back home. His right hand gripped the pen, using swift flourishes to tell stories of the battlefield. It almost felt real. But agonizing pain overtook Hedekopper at the end of every dream. His right hand seemed to clench, cramp, and then there was nothing he could do to get rid of the pain. Each night, Hedekopper shook himself awake from the terrible dream, but the sensation persisted. His left arm felt for his right, but all he found was a swollen stump and bloody bandages in its place. Hedekopper did everything he could to massage the pain away, to remedy the agonizing pain that plagued his right hand. But how do you soothe an arm that's no longer there? When our bodies fail, we trust doctors to diagnose the problem. But medicine isn't always an exact science. Sometimes it's a guessing game with life-or-death stakes. This is Medical Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm Molly. And I'm Richard. Every Tuesday, we'll look at the strangest real-life medical cases in history and the experts who raced against the clock to solve them. As we follow these high-intensity stories, we'll explore medical research that might solve the puzzle. Next week, in part two, we'll analyze all the evidence and try to find an answer. You can find episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Medical Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. This is our first episode on phantom limb pain, a medical phenomenon in which amputees experience sensations in their absent appendages. This week, we'll explore the first reports of phantom limb pain in the 1500s, and we'll see how a popular Civil War account of PLP brought attention to the condition. Next week, we'll try to find the root cause of phantom limb pain, Then, we'll look at modern treatments, from therapy using mirrors to augmented and virtual reality. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Surgical amputations are one of the oldest medical treatments in recorded history. Evidence suggests they were performed 45,000 years ago. They grew more common in ancient Rome and Greece in the 4th and 5th century BCE. Wartime spear and club injuries, along with trench foot and frostbite, spurred many doctors to remove toes, feet, hands, fingers, and any other appendage that posed a threat. When tissues are severely damaged and cannot heal, they become a risk for infection. If untreated, it can become septic, meaning the corruption can spread to the rest of the body, hence the need for surgical amputation. The problem was surgeons couldn't control blood loss, and patients rarely lived through the procedure. Greek and Roman doctors used tourniquets to tie off the wound, or a ligature, a piece of thread, or a suture. Doctors abandoned the method at some point during the rise of the Roman Empire, though it's unclear why. Instead, they cauterized or burned the flesh around an injury to seal off the arteries. They used hot irons or applied boiling oil after surgery. This technique was ubiquitous until the 1500s when a French doctor named Ambroise Paré changed the surgical landscape. He believed there had to be a safer, less painful way to treat his injured patients. In 1533, Paré became a barber surgeon at the Hotel Jew, a Parisian hospital. Barber surgeons handled everything from bloodletting to leeching. They also pulled teeth, fought infections, and they'd cut hair, too. Paré quickly climbed the ranks at Hotel Dieu. He got a job as physician and surgeon to the French army in 1536. Along the way, he reformed medical treatment, especially amputations. Before Paré, most surgical procedures were extremely painful. The only drugs available were opium, a pain reliever and sleep inducer derived from the poppy plant, henbane, a leaf used to calm the digestive tract, mandrake, a root for constipation, arthritis, sedation, and pain relief, and stiff liquor. When performing amputations, Paré reintroduced ligatures and tourniquets to staunch bleeding. The techniques were revolutionary. More patients survived their amputations. Most of Paré's clients suffered from gangrene, which occurs when tissue dies of lack of blood flow due to infection or trauma. As gangrene progresses, it can cause extreme pain in the dying tissue. Then, once the cells die, they become totally numb. Advanced gangrene patients don't feel anything at all. If left untreated, gangrene can be life-threatening. So doctors often amputated gangrenous limbs once they became numb. Paré took a special interest in those patients who had lost feeling but hadn't undergone the amputation yet. 
he noticed that even when he aggressively tugged, pinched, or removed the dead limb, the patient felt nothing. With one bizarre exception. Even in the absence of stimulus, some patients felt an inexplicable prickling in their dead appendage, a sensation that Paré was certain shouldn't exist. Paré worried that this tingling feeling would deceive inexperienced surgeons, or it might inspire someone to refuse an operation. If the patient still felt something, it could suggest the gangrene hadn't progressed, but Paré knew the gangrene was still there, threatening the patient's life. Nevertheless, the prickling was inexplicable. And the phenomenon wasn't exclusive to patients suffering from gangrene. In fact, Paré realized that some of his amputees felt pain in their missing appendages. Patients returned in the months, weeks, even days after their surgeries, complaining about sensation in their absent limbs. Some even claimed that they could feel the appendage occupying space. They'd step out of bed, trying to land on their missing leg. Others said they tried to pick up a pen with an absent hand. Many claimed their lost limbs still felt connected to the rest of their bodies. A leg amputated at the thigh still felt like it bent at the knee when a person sat. An arm severed at the shoulder still felt as if it swayed when they walked. Some patients reported that their limbs felt stuck in unnatural positions. A man who lost his arm in an accident felt like it constantly extended straight out from his shoulder, but he couldn't lower it. He had to turn sideways to fit through doorways so he wouldn't knock the phantom arm against the wall. Another patient always slept on his stomach because he believed his amputated arm was stuck behind his back. Others reported pain from bunions or blisters on their missing feet. Tight rings suffocated their absent fingers. They'd wake up in the night trying to scratch a hand that was no longer there, or trying to massage a cramp in a leg that had been removed. To these patients, the limbs seemed like they were still part of their bodies. Paré discovered that this pain didn't occur in patients who'd lost an appendage as infants, or people who were born missing a limb. The phenomenon appeared to be exclusive to patients who'd suffered a trauma, and Paré wanted to find out why. There seemed to be some kind of disconnect between the mind and the body. But during Paré's era, doctors didn't understand much about how the nervous system worked. Paré was in uncharted territory. Paré posited that amputations damaged nerves and the malfunctioning neurons then created false pain signals. Now, a correctly functioning brain would receive these signals and dismiss them. It would know that the patient's hand couldn't possibly hurt because the hand was gone. But Paré alleged that phantom pain occurred when those pain signals bypassed the brain entirely. Typically, every sensation travels from your nerves to your brain for processing. Imagine you're filling your tub up for a bath. You stick your hand under the faucet to gauge the temperature. Nerves in your fingers collect information about what you feel, but they can't analyze it themselves. So they carry the data through your spinal cord and up to your brain, which interprets the sensation as hot 
cold, or just right. Then your brain tells you what to do with that information. First, you pull your hand away from the faucet, then adjust the temperature as necessary. Your neural system does all of this in a fraction of a second, but sometimes that's not fast enough. In dangerous situations, every millisecond counts, so warning signals like pain can bypass the brain entirely. Let's say instead of bath water, you set your hand on a hot stovetop. Every moment your skin is in contact with the surface, you're risking a severe burn. So the nerves in your spinal cord recognize that you're in danger and send an immediate instruction, move your hand. You pull away from the burner before your brain has even processed what happened. This is called a reflex. And Paré figured something similar happened with the inexplicable pain amputees feel. The brain knew that the patient's arm or leg was gone, but the spinal cord still processed inputs as though they were still there. There were a few problems with Paré's theory. The biggest was that it didn't offer insight as to how to treat or manage the phantom pain. But Paré wasn't looking for a cure. He didn't see the sensations as a problem in and of themselves. Mostly, he didn't want to let the strange pain deter surgeons from saving lives. He spent most of his career advocating for medically necessary amputations, rather than trying to treat phantom pain. But Paré's theory laid the foundation for other thinkers. A 17th century philosopher named René Descartes took his research on these strange pains further. And based on his findings, he warned others not to trust their senses. Coming up, a doctor provides his first-hand account of phantom limb pain. Now, back to the story. In the mid-1500s, French surgeon Ambroise Paré changed the landscape of medicine. He discovered that patients with gangrene experienced a tingling sensation in their dead limbs, and amputees could feel their missing appendages. A century later, philosopher and mathematician René Descartes combined Paré's scientific findings with the seemingly supernatural and put the phantom pain in a spiritual context. In a 1637 letter, Descartes described a young girl whom we'll call Emily. She suffered a severe wound in her hand from an unknown cause. After several days without treatment, Emily contracted a life-threatening gangrene infection in her arm. Emily's family brought her to a surgeon who told them the arm needed to be removed. In an effort to keep her calm, they blindfolded Emily so she wouldn't have to watch the gruesome operation. Afterwards, the doctor bandaged Emily's stump and gave her drugs to dull her senses. For weeks, the young girl didn't realize that her arm was gone. During that time, Emily complained of severe pain in her fingers, wrist, and forearm. Sometimes it felt like a burning in her pinky finger, and other times a cramping in her index. Descartes wrote, This was obviously due to the condition of the nerves in her arm, which formerly led from her brain to those parts of her body. In other words, Descartes shared Paré's assumptions that phantom pain came from malfunctioning nerves. But there was one key difference. 
Paré thought the damaged nerves were in the stump where the limb was removed. Descartes thought the problem occurred in the brain. In fact, Descartes believed all sensations exist in the mind. Because the brain processes inputs, it was also the source of pain, pleasure, hunger, satiety, tension, relaxation, and any other possible feeling. There is some truth to Descartes' theory. Clinical psychologists David Patterson and Mark Jensen demonstrated that hypnosis is a more effective pain reliever than some medications, proving that the brain has the ability to create or remove pain. Meditation, mindfulness, and hypnosis have also been used to treat physical maladies like addiction, sleep disorders, and stress-related conditions like high blood pressure or anxiety. But Descartes saw the mind and the body as two entirely separate entities. He argued that amputees felt pain and tingling in their missing limbs because the pain and tingling never came from those limbs in the first place. A person's physical state was irrelevant to their perceptions. Descartes also believed there was a supernatural element at play. He thought that the pineal gland, a pea-sized gland that rests between the two hemispheres of the brain, was actually home to animal spirits. These were supernatural entities that lived in the blood and gave the body life. According to Descartes, animal spirits traveled through the arteries and veins. And as they passed through the body, they also created odd and otherwise inexplicable sensations, like a floater in the eye or a tingling in a non-existent limb. So yes, he believed in the nervous system, but he believed it was controlled by small animal spirits. His explanation was as good as anybody else's at the time. For centuries, the pineal gland was one of the most mysterious parts of the human body, as was the rest of the endocrine system, a series of glands and organs, including the thyroid, pancreas, and adrenal glands. It's designed to regulate metabolism, temperature, and appetite. And today, we know the pineal gland manages the production of melatonin, which maintains the body's circadian rhythm. It also helps regulate the female hormonal system and may affect fertility and menstruation. Modern science has not proven that it's home to microscopic spirits. But Descartes saw Emily's case as a way to prove his theories. She supported a point he'd been trying to make for decades, that humans shouldn't trust their own senses. Descartes believed that our senses often deceive us, and we shouldn't rely on them in the decision-making process. For example, if you see a mountain in the distance, it looks tiny thanks to perspective. But when you approach the mountain, you find that, in reality, it's gigantic. And Descartes interpreted this to mean that our sense of sight isn't reliable. Descartes used the evidence of pain in amputated limbs to further prove his point. The brain's interpretation of sensory data was untrustworthy. How could someone without a hand experience pain in their finger? But Descartes wasn't exactly a scientist. He was a philosopher, and he didn't adhere to the scientific method. He often decided in advance what conclusion he wanted to reach, and then looked for evidence that supported it. 
there's even a fallacy named after his logical leaps. A Cartesian fallacy is a circular argument in which the conclusion is used as a piece of evidence to support itself. But even if Descartes had been more objective, his evidence of phantom pain didn't tell the whole story. The accounts he and Paré used for their research were second- or third-hand descriptions from patients or doctors. Neither researcher was an amputee, so they couldn't really understand what the phantom sensations felt like. But in the 1700s, Scottish physician William Porterfield changed the game. Porterfield was an ophthalmologist specializing in eye and vision care. He invented the world's first optometer, a tool that tests your eyesight. It's the basis for the same device doctors use to check your glasses or contact prescription. Porterfield was also an amputee. There's no clear account of how he lost his leg. We only know that it happened in his youth. But he was one of the first amputees to describe phantom pain. Porterfield recorded his experiences in his book, A Treatise on the Eye. For years after Porterfield lost his limb, he felt pain and tickling in his toes, heel, and ankle. He claimed an itch was so intense, he couldn't help but try and scratch the non-existent foot. He knew there was nothing there, but the sensation was unignorable. Porterfield wrote, And however strange this may appear to some, it is nevertheless no way miraculous or extraordinary, but very agreeable to the usual course and tenor of nature. Porterfield agreed with Descartes that the brain and the senses tricked the body. But he disagreed with the conclusion that our senses were untrustworthy. Instead, Porterfield believed that phantom pain was just the brain's way of processing information. And his experience in ophthalmology helped him explain how. Porterfield believed that our senses gathered external stimuli that were then processed in the brain. The brain and the nerves alike shaped a person's perceived reality. His theory was called sensory perception. Take an apple, for example. If you look at it during a sunny day, you'll see a bright red piece of fruit. When the sun sets, you'll see the apple get darker in color, from red to maroon. Even though the apple remains physically unchanged, your brain sees it as a different color. But that doesn't mean your senses are lying to you. Instead, your brain is processing an entirely different physical change, an absence of light. And so long as you understand that and don't assume the apple really changed color, you can trust your senses. In other words, Porterfield believed that perception isn't perfect, but the things we see and feel still provide trustworthy information. A mountain seems to get bigger as we approach it, and that tells us we're getting close. An apple seems to change color as the sun sets, and that tells us it's getting dark. Likewise, an amputee knows their limb is no longer present, but they still feel pain. Those sensations come from somewhere, something stimulating nerve endings in the stump. Doctors just had to figure out what that something was. But Porterfield wasn't interested in solving that mystery. He studied phantom pain to learn more about perception, 
which informed his work as an ophthalmologist. His theories didn't change much for amputees or offer them any solutions on how to manage their pain. The next major breakthrough didn't come until the first half of the 19th century. Physiologist Johannes Müller found six patients with phantom pain for over 12 years. He'd originally believed that the phantom pains would fade over time and was astonished to find that even after more than a decade, his patients still reported inexplicable twinges and cramps. In fact, he noted, quote, the belief that these sensations are lost a short time after amputation is an error of medical men who generally do not watch the patients longer than a few months, end quote. In other words, the data was always there, but doctors hadn't bothered to gather it. Muller also tried to gauge whether certain stimuli could cause or stop the phantom pain. He recognized that weather affected a patient's sensations. He described one patient who'd lost his right arm. They felt distinct pain each time the weather changed. They were sensitive to shifts in air pressure and even strong winds. Before Muller, no one had ever conducted a large-scale study of phantom pain. In fact, many doctors had refused to believe it even existed. Amputees who dared complain of it were labeled fakers and attention seekers. Their physicians assumed they were lying to avoid military drafts or scam their employers. Meanwhile, inexplicable burning, clenching, and itching plagued patients day in and day out. The sensations woke them from their sleep. They disrupted their daily life. And the few people studying the phenomenon could only ask, was there a way to treat a limb that didn't exist? Coming up, a Civil War doctor introduces phantom sensations to popular culture. Now, back to the story. In 1637, philosopher René Descartes theorized that amputees felt pain in their missing limbs because of mischievous animal spirits. Ophthalmologist William Porterfield countered that the pain stemmed from stimulated nerve endings in the patient's stumps. And in the early 1800s, Johannes Müller studied six different patients over a course of 12 years. All the researchers tried to determine where the pain came from, but none could agree on a theory. And since they didn't understand the connection between the mind and the body, they couldn't treat or cure the inexplicable condition. And it was more urgent than ever to solve the mystery. In 1861, the Civil War began in the United States. More than 600,000 American soldiers died in battle. Hundreds of thousands more were wounded or contracted infectious diseases like pneumonia, typhoid, dysentery, and malaria. And new weapons like front-loading rifles shattered bone and destroyed tissue. Doctors performed more than 30,000 amputations over the course of the four-year war. To accommodate the massive influx of patients, the average surgeon learned to remove a limb in under three minutes. This may seem horrifically fast, but the speed prevented blood loss and infection. 
Carl Schurz, a major general, documented his experience during the war. He wrote of a man who shrieked in pain as he entered the hospital. The surgeon then snatched the knife from between his teeth, where it had been while his hands were busy examining the patient, wiped it rapidly once or twice across a blood-stained apron, and the cutting began. When he was finished, the surgeon sighed and yelled, Next! In Philadelphia, Dr. Silas Ware Mitchell saw how patients were quickly and insensitively treated and resolved to change things. At the start of the war, 32-year-old Mitchell was a contract surgeon for the Northern Army. His first appointment was at the old armory building in Philadelphia, which had been converted into a temporary hospital. He specialized in treating patients with nerve disorders. Only a few blocks away, Philadelphia's South Street Hospital was known as Stump Hospital due to the many amputees they treated. Of the 72% of men who survived amputation, most suffered from complications like edema, the medical term for fluid retention, or damage to the nervous system. But most soldiers ended up at Stump Hospital because of infections. He hoped to find some common factor that would help surgeons reduce risk and make amputations safer. Along the way, Mitchell met many patients who experienced pain in their lost limbs. The phenomenon was shockingly common. 90% of the amputees he met reported some kind of phantom sensation. One man named Charles said both of his amputated feet were in constant agony. He claimed that it was the worst at night. The pain was so terrible it kept him awake. 58-year-old E.D. lost both his feet and right leg to frostbite and gangrene. He told Mitchell of undeniable burning sensations in his severed limbs. Lieutenant Colonel Henry S. Hedekopper explained that his fingers in his missing hand were distinctly felt, and pains occur oftentimes in various parts of them. Mitchell couldn't explain what was going on. No clinical trials had ever been performed on amputees, and most of the research on phantom pain was old and based on outdated medical theories. Mitchell believed, like Pare, that irritations in the healing stump triggered nerve impulses. Then the brain misinterpreted those signals, as Descartes and Porterfield had claimed. It believed those pain signals came from the lost appendage, even though they obviously didn't. Mitchell wanted to learn more about phantom pain and even find a way to treat it. But he couldn't conduct any studies without funding. He needed to convince the world at large that the condition was real and serious. Luckily, less than a year after the Civil War ended, the Atlantic Monthly published an article called The Case of George Dedlow. It was a first-hand account from a patient who suffered from phantom pain. While serving as an assistant surgeon in Indiana, Dedlow took a shot through the right arm and had it amputated near the shoulder. After his recovery, Dedlow was forced back into battle. But when his platoon was leveled in an explosion, Dedlow found himself under a tree, floating in and out of consciousness. He awoke in the hospital later. He complained of cramps in one of his calves and asked a steward to massage the pain away. But the steward replied, Calf, you ain't none, partner. It's took off. 
Dedlow had lost both his legs in the explosion. While he recovered in a Tennessee hospital, he contracted gangrene in his left arm. Eventually, that too had to be amputated. Feeling like a shell of a man, Dedlow was transferred to Stump Hospital in Philadelphia, where he finally felt like he wasn't alone. He joined hundreds of other amputees, many of whom experienced phantom pains and lost limbs. He described his own inexplicable sensations, the twinges and aches in arms and legs that weren't there anymore. He noted, I had begun to suffer the most acute pain in my left hand, especially the little finger, and I found it hard at times to believe them absent. Often at night, I would try with one lost hand to grope for the other. Entranced by Dedlow's story, thousands donated to Stump Hospital, where they assumed the amputee still resided. But the fictional account of George Dedlow was actually written by Dr. Silas Ware Mitchell. He'd made up the character to raise awareness. And it worked. For the first time, people paid attention to the phenomenon he officially named Phantom Limb Pain. Mitchell continued his studies well after the war, and after his article about George Dedlow became a hit, something incredible happened. Countless amputees came out as sufferers of phantom limb pain. For decades, doctors had refused to acknowledge that the condition existed, but it was common knowledge among ordinary Civil War soldiers. Most patients declined to see a doctor about it as they feared they'd be accused of lying or faking it. But they shared their experiences with their friends, comrades, and families. Mitchell discovered there was a massive disconnect between physicians and laypeople. Ordinary people with no medical training easily accepted that phantom limb pain existed. But it took decades of extensive research for Mitchell to prove the same facts to medical professionals. By the 1870s, Mitchell had studied 90 different amputees and found that 86 of them suffered from PLP. And given the overwhelmingly positive response to the case of George Dedlow, Mitchell shared his patients' non-fictional accounts of the medical phenomenon. In 1871, Mitchell published an article in Lippincott's magazine that shed light on his new discoveries. Mitchell agreed with Mueller that weather played a part in BLP. Before it rained, many patients felt worse. He also found that strong emotions like anger or sadness could exacerbate the pain in the stump. Even yawning often made the severed limb twitch. He addressed the subtle difference between arm, leg, finger, and toe phantoms. Leg phantoms weren't as vivid as arm phantoms, perhaps because people have 17,000 touch receptors and nerve endings in the hand, while the feet only have 7,000. Once, Mitchell observed a man who'd lost a hand try to strike another. The blow didn't land. His stump passed inches from the other man's face. But it felt real to the patient, and he apologized profusely afterward. Another recovered amputee repeatedly tried to grab his horse's reins with his lost fingers. Mitchell also discovered a bizarre telescoping sensation with some patients. Men who felt like their missing foot was attached at the knee rather than the ankle or their hand connected to the elbow 
rather than the wrist. Mitchell tried dozens of techniques to help his patients. Electrical stimulation, where electrodes send impulses through healthy tissues. He removed stumps, hoping to eliminate nerves that had been damaged in the original amputations. He tried acupuncture, even opiates, morphine, and other drugs. While some of these treatments offered temporary relief, the phantom pain always returned. If Mitchell could understand the condition's cause, perhaps he could end his patient's suffering. It was bad enough that they had to relearn how to use their bodies. The additional sensations were a constant reminder of their limitations and the trauma they'd suffered. But Mitchell died in January 1914 without discovering the cause or cure for phantom limb pain. However, he brought the condition into the limelight and inspired other physicians to follow in his footsteps. In the 20th century, doctors from many fields came together to solve the behavioral, physiological, and pathological mystery of phantom limb pain. All it took was a change in how they understood the nervous system as a whole. Turns out, the human body is more like a computer than we think. The mind is prone to short circuits and faulty wiring, especially when the hardware has suffered some kind of damage. And sometimes, the brain needs a hard reset. Thanks for listening to Medical Mysteries. We'll be back next week to examine the causes of phantom limb pain. We'll also explore some of its technologically advanced treatments. You can find all episodes of Medical Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals like Medical Mysteries for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Medical Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Medical Mysteries in the search bar. We'll see you next time. Medical Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Medical Mysteries was written by Lori Gottlieb with writing assistance by Maggie Admire and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner.